guidance counselor told me when I was 16 that he didn't think I could be successful at a predominantly white college and therefore I should set my sights someplace else. That has propelled a lifetime of doing things people think I can't. That was Sharon Barner, Chief Administrative Officer of Cummins, talking about her lifetime of leadership in the IP legal field and her legacy of growing diverse legal talent. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Thank you for joining me on the seventh episode, the 2022 Black History Month edition of IBJ's The Freedom Forum. On our previous episode, we've been talking with diverse entrepreneurs focusing in different business genres, including venture capital, construction, STEM, and tech. Starting this month, we'll begin focusing more on corporate leaders and executives in Indiana who are really making a difference in how their companies and communities embrace diversity and inclusion in business. With that background, this month we're speaking with a true legal legend and trailblazer, Sharon Barner. Vice President, Chief Administrative Officer, and Corporate Secretary of Cummins Incorporated. Sharon's had over 30 years of intellectual property or IP experience in the private, public, and governmental sectors, particularly as an IP partner at Foley and Lardner, as well as the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce during the Obama administration. Before her recent promotion to CAO, Sharon served almost a decade as Cummins General Counsel, where she made significant changes to the legal department. But well beyond her legal expertise, I believe Sharon is nationally known and respected for her clear and unapologetic expectation and accountability that her in-house and outside counsel legal teams are diverse. So it's truly my pleasure to welcome a true black history maker to the Freedom Forum. Sharon, welcome. Thank you, Angela. You're very welcome, and I'm so excited to have you here today. We're going to start with asking you to tell our listeners just a little bit about you, your educational background. I've told them quite a bit about your professional background and any other factors that led to you becoming an attorney with a focus in IP or intellectual property. Thank you. Well, first, let me just say thank you for having me. Of course. I am extremely pleased to be your lead off for Black History Month. Yes. Um, and delighted to be here. So, you know, I always consider myself a small-town girl. Grew up in a town in Twinsburg, Ohio, about 20,000. And I always had my sights set on a big city and a big practice, a big career. Didn't really know what that looked like at 15, looking, out, looking from Twinsburg, Ohio, but I, that's what I had my sights on, so I, I always aimed high. Yep. Uh, I'll tell you, growing up in my house with six women, my mother and five sisters, <laughs> uh, plus my dad, poor, poor man, <laughs> Um, I always felt, and my mom taught us, there was nothing that her girls couldn't do. Absolutely. So I, from a very early age, I felt like I was capable of achieving whatever I set my sights on. That's what led me to leave Ohio and go to New York for my college education. And I think it was that opportunity that really broadened my horizons. Yep. I thought I was going to be a doctor, have a biology background, but took a left turn and decided to go to law school. Yeah, yeah. And I, the thing I liked about science was I liked to know how things work. Yeah. Uh, I liked the design, the processes, uh, all the things that are related to innovation. And so I felt really fortunate after going to the University of Michigan Law School that I learned about intellectual property. I didn't know that coming through college and law school at the time. Um, but I happened to 
find out about intellectual property, and it piqued so many things about my passion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had an opportunity to both learn uh, the law and an area of science right. that I enjoyed. So I felt like I had died and gone to heaven. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and Best of both worlds. Exactly. Yeah, and I, yeah. I had no idea I was going to have an incredible sustaining career right. for nearly 30 years in the intellectual property area. All of those things, I would say, led to me loving and falling in love with intellectual property. Yeah. And to this day, even though I don't do it anymore, I still love it. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's so interesting. I don't know that I knew you and I have quite a bit in common. A, you grew up in Ohio. I don't think I knew that. You know, I claim it. I'm a Kentucky country girl. You know, I claim that every day. I don't know if you claim the Kentucky. I mean, the, the country part, but I, I'm a proud country girl. I didn't know that. And certainly your experience with IP and just learning about IP, you learned quite a bit earlier than I did. But it's the same passion, that science and Mixing that with the law is the same reason I got into it. So that's that's fantastic and great to know and, and learn. Sharon, you've had a esteemed career. I've already talked quite a bit about your career. And you've truly had the opportunity to work in all facets of IP. You led the IP department of a big law firm for years before transitioning into the government as an appointee to the USPTO under the Obama administration, like I mentioned previously. And then with your most recent move to corporate, albeit, you know, I know that was a decade ago, as GC of Cummins and now this chief administrative officer, you've really spanned the gamut. But through all that, you've always been a black woman. Right. Hmm. So from that point of reference, given the diversity of your work experience and your advancement through the ranks in all fields or all respects, can you recall a personal experience that you're willing to share that captures the essence of the inequities that women and particularly diverse women often face in legal and business departments across the country every day, whether it's private practice, corporations, or government organizations. Well, that's a lot, Angela. (laughs) (laughs) That is a lot. Um, So let me see if I can try. (laughs) Let me just start with, you know, as an African-American, and as you say, I've been that all my life, and I've been a woman all my life, so I'm used to dealing with it. Yep. Right? And... What I would say is that as I came through, both in my education and then as I started my profession, it was clear to me, and I don't even know when I started knowing it, that I was going to have to work harder, Mm -hmm. I was going to have to be better, I was going to have to show up extraordinaire on every occasion. So I bring that sense of accomplishment because I've worked so hard, and I know I'm working harder than others because of the two weights you have on you, that of being a woman and that of being black. And so that has helped propel my career because I show up ready, right? I show up extra ready every time. And that surprises people who do not look like me because I've known I had to do that my entire career. And so... The way it was brought home to me early on in my education, I had a guidance counselor who told me when I was 16 that he didn't think I could be successful at a predominantly white college, and therefore I should set my sights someplace else. That has propelled a lifetime of doing things people think I can't. I don't know what perception he had, but I knew it didn't match mine, right? right? And so whenever I am confronted with people who think that I am not capable, 
and that is almost an everyday thing. Right. <laughs> that 16-year-old, I can do whatever comes out. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so for the last 50 years, that I can do what people think I can't yeah. has been the thing that's propelled my career. So that was the very first thing. And it taught me a lesson really early in my life not to other, let other people determine what my projections and Absolutely. my trajectory is. Absolutely. I think the second thing I would say came to me in part as a woman. When I had my first kid, my first child, the partners that I worked with, and I was a partner at the time when I had my first child, yes. the things that they said to me about now having a child, well, are you still going to work hard? Right. Are you still as committed? Right. Right. All of the things that, why wouldn't you, I'm back at work, right. think that I'm still committed to my craft. Right. Right. And so that also gave me an, some insight into the underlying bias that women face sheerly by being a woman. Yeah, absolutely. Right? All of them had kids. Did, did it make them less committed? Right. So why, because I'm a woman, would it make me less committed to my job? So those two things are, are the things that stick out as salient. Of course, there are many, many more microaggressions you absolutely. experience every day. But those two things I think about a lot in my profession. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And you, you know I certainly can empathize with, you know, that vantage point. I've done all that as well. And, and, and it's the issues that women face every day, yeah. all the time, you know, still having children and are you coming back? Are you going to do the thing? So that that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So so you and I have known each other for quite a few years now, almost 10, I think. Um, and I've always known you to be a boss, like straight up <laughs> running stuff. Like that's that's how I know you. That's how I perceive you to this day. I've known you to exude confidence and courageous leadership in a way that I suspect many people don't often get to witness in a business setting, particularly from a diverse woman. And I, certain, I certainly had not seen that in uh, my career, particularly in this area of law, which is so not diverse, right? We, are, we still stick out as unicorns in our field. However, like so many people, I want to ask you the question that I get on a regular basis, which is from where, and you, you've spoken to this a bit, but from where and from whom? Did, did you get your sense of confidence? You talked about at an early age, at 16 you knew, but at what age, stage, or level in your career did you find that confidence <laughs> when you feel free enough to actually vocalize right, your confidence in the corporate business environment in a way that supports and promotes issues in the workplace that you and I care deeply about, like diversity and equity and yeah. inclusion in the law, particularly IP law. Well, Angela, if my mom were here, she'd tell you I was born this way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay? yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's being the middle child of a middle child, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't remember a time when I wasn't confident about the thing I was doing. Yes, yeah. I remember when I was about seven or eight years old, I decided I wanted to learn how to swim. Yeah. And my mother did not want us to go swimming. I lost a brother who drowned. Oh. When I was two, so she wanted us all to stay away from the water. Right. Well, in my head, the best way to not drown is to know how to swim. Amen. Okay. <laughs> okay. So at eight years old in 4-H, I decided to take swimming lessons contrary to what she wanted. Right, right. Right? So I, again, I think I've always had this sense of I can do it. Right. And I'm going to do <laughs> it. And I'm it. going to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I've taken that into every venue that I've been in, and it's grown. And that's not to say I don't have failures, but I look at my failures as a part of building confidence. Yeah. I learn probably more from my failures 
than my successes. Yeah. I think the other thing is that being overly prepared all the time. Yeah. Because we so frequently have to work twice as hard. Yes. When you show up in a room and people who are in that room who have not had to do that, you are absolutely confident of what you bring to that room because you see what else is in the room. Absolutely. (laughs) So that has been, I think that level of confidence is supported when you go into those rooms. And it turns out you do know stuff. Right, right. And not only do you know stuff, you know it better than the other people in the room. Right, right, right. So that that level of showing up ready has been... I think, substantiated over the years. Yes. And that is not to say when you show up, you are smarter than everybody in the room. Right. That's, that's not, to me, the question. Right. The question is, are you doing what you need to do at the highest level in the best way? Yeah. And you will, you will have some failures right. in, that, in that route. So for me, that level of confidence is enhanced by the people around me. Yeah. Right? By the, by the successes you have, by the failures you have and recover from. Right. Right. And, you know, for me, it, it's almost like breathing. Yeah. Because yeah. if I don't show up confident, someone's going to take away my, my ability to show up and feel like I know how to do what I'm right, doing. Right, 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 right. No, I appreciate that. So yeah. I, think it's, I think of it many, in many ways like an athlete does, right? An athlete, especially one who's at the top of their game, is going to practice right. and make sure they're honing their skill. Right, right. And I feel that same way about whatever task I undertake. I have to hone that skill right. so that I can deliver and contribute in a way that I want to. Yeah. So I think that, that confidence comes from that. Right? And some people along my career have has viewed as, as arrogance. It's not arrogance. Right. It's just showing up prepared and knowing that you're going to be prepared. My husband will often say, tell the story about this occasion in which I had an opposing counsel who knew I was going on vacation but filed something the Friday before my vacation was to start. Right, right. And I stayed up for 48 hours yeah. to make sure I delivered it before I left for vacation. Yeah. I'm okay. going to get the work done and take my and vacation. And take my vacation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just to show you that I can get it done. Right, 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 right. right. So it's that level of drive yeah. and then having some of those successes along the way. Yeah. And I think that level of independence and confidence I've had from being the middle child with five girls. Yeah, okay, yeah. So. That, I mean, that, that's, that's powerful. And you talked about failure, and you, you gave me a great segue. As leaders, we're taught to look at failure, and you talked about this, as an opportunity for growth, right, right. and lessons learned. However, oftentimes in business, particularly as a diverse leader or a diverse woman, you don't always get more than one opportunity to fail. In other words, failure can often be fatal to your career in a way that's not typically the case for our non-diverse counterparts. So can you share with us an opportunity where you have failed in business and what did you learn and how were you able to recover? You talked about recovery. Were you in a work environment or business culture that allowed you to learn and grow from that experience or were more drastic measures required? Tell us about failure. So, again, I I think you can't be successful without failure. Right. Right. And if you understand that as a part of you being better. Right you don't view it as a significant detraction from your skills and ability. Right. In science, we know failure is a part of science. Absolutely. That's how you get innovation, right, right? right? So for me, if you inculcate that, if that is a part of who you are, how you show up every day, when you fail, 
it's not so much about whether someone else allows you to recover, mm. right? It's whether you allow yourself to recover mm. from it. Yeah, that's powerful. Because right? we're yeah, really yeah. good at beating ourselves up when we fail. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that's the first thing. I think part of failure and recovering is self-induced. Mm. The second thing is, if you are with and in an environment where people are not going to let you fail and recover, you ultimately may not stay in that environment. Right, right. Right? Because we know that everyone's failing sometime and recovering. Right. And we know that as black professionals, we're not allowed frequently the same ability to fail and recover from it. Right, right. You wear it around like a scholar letter. You hear that film played back to you over and over again. Right, right. I feel very fortunate in my career that I worked with and looked for people. Right who were going to allow me to fail and recover, yeah. who were going to give me constructive feedback so I could grow, and who I was going to trust that that feedback was coming from a good place yeah. that was investing in me. So I look for those people. Sure. Okay, so the other aspect of it is if, when you work with people who won't allow you to fail and recover, don't keep working for them. I know that's right. <laughs> Go Absolutely. find people who are going to allow you to fail and recover yeah. and invest in you because they... They know that you're smart, and they know you work hard, and they know you will fail. Right. And they're going to help because you learn. Because everyone does. Because everyone does. That's right. That's and right. so uh, uh, over the course of my career, when I have run into people who are going to continue to play back that old tape of yeah. I failed once, and I, and therefore they're going to hold it against me, I'm not working for you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm out. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I leave the company. That means I'm going to go find people who are going to invest in me. Absolutely. So the times that I failed and recovered... I, are numerous, yeah. right? Both in my professional career, working for clients, I can't win every case, right. and I take every case personally, though. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So that is a personal failure, even though I might have, I know that I didn't have a winning case going in. Right. So you know, some of those failures for me are really kind of just <laughs> pieces of a puzzle that put together the whole the whole person and the whole professional. It also allows you to let people fail and recover when you are managing them. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because yeah. remember, that's a two-way street as you get Absolutely. more, go, go along the profession. Absolutely. You, too, have to be willing to let people fail and, and recover. And recover, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I, the one, one of the things that I remember most was when I first moved to Chicago, I left Cleveland. I, I started practicing law in Cleveland and then moved to Chicago after, after a few years. And I worked with a partner who was just a bear. And I knew that. And I didn't actually want to do the work, but, you know, I'm a young associate. I go where and work with people who say I work for. Right, right, right. right. So I remember that I had to take two weeks off to study for the bar exam mm -hmm. uh, in Illinois. And he deemed that a vacation. Wow. Okay. And even though I had been saying for three months, here's when I'm leaving, here are the things I need to get in place, you know, I go away, I take two weeks to study for the bar exam, come back, and dude's not speaking to me. And I'm like, what the heck? Right. So I go and I say, hey, what's, is it, did I miss something? Right. You're not speaking to me. You're not really giving me work. And he goes through this whole thing about how I, took, how I took a vacation and he doesn't believe in vacations and so on and so forth. I'm still just a third year associate, really a fourth year associate. And my thing was, dude, I'm going to finish up your work. And then I'm out. Yeah. You won't ever have to worry holding the fact that I needed to take two weeks to study for a bar exam so I could practice law. Right, right, right. Legally. Against me again, right? <laughs> um, so, so, you know, to me, that's one of those things that sticks out yeah. for me about it wasn't really a failure of mine, but that's where you can tell people are playing old tapes on you. Right, right. So I had a conversation with the managing partner about this whole episode of now the guy's walking around not speaking to me because I knew he would then be in rooms that I'm not in. Sure. Uh, saying things that are detrimental about me and my professional 
commitment. Right, 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 right. right. I did recover from that, of course. Um, I that guy called me from work one day <laughs> when I was the GC. Okay. Wow. So guess what? Right. He never got any of my work. Right. Right. right? You know, so, so the world is small, but those are the things for me that you can tell when you're being treated differently. Yeah. I appreciate that, man. What you talked about is we have to find people, right, who will invest in us. And, and what we've learned as women, and particularly diverse women, is that we almost always require sponsorship and mentorship in order to enter executive levels of leadership, such as the C-suite. And we also know that such sponsorship requires those in positions, that's what you're talking about, of power, to leverage their social and political capital on our behalf, right? I imagine that you have sponsored and mentored many people who have gone on to be terribly successful. In fact, I've met plenty and had no idea that you were involved until they told their story. And I'm like, yep, no surprise. (laughs) Sharon's, Sharon's behind them too. In doing so, I'm sure that there have also been opportunities where you've likely gotten burned or been disappointed or had folks not live up to the expectations or promises that you made on their behalf. It's, in my mind, it's easy to mentor rock stars, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as easy (laughs) to mentor or sponsor folks who are talented, particularly diverse folks or anybody that have difficult characters or personalities or who my mother and maybe your (laughs) my mother and grandmother, maybe your mother would call hard headed. Mm -hmm. Right. Don't don't like to listen. So how how do you balance that? How do you manage that? Everyone who comes says, Sharon, I need your help. Or Sharon, I want you to sponsor me or mentor me. Is not just an absolute rock star mm-hmm. who's going to do their thing. How have you managed that over the course of your career? It's an interesting question because I think there are struggles on both sides of that. I mean, it's hard to manage really talented people yeah. who are rock stars, and it's hard to manage those folks who are still trying to get their footing, let's right, say. Right, 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 <laughs> and, right. You know, from the rock star perspective, it's hard because you've got to level set them and help them tame their ambition sometimes. Right, right, right. Right? You know, you can't just walk on people to get what you need. There is that struggle of managing really good, great rock stars. Yeah. You've seen athletes who are rock stars, and you've seen yeah. <laughs> talent that are rock stars. They can be a bit overwhelming at times, even though they're really, really good at what they do. Yeah. Right? On the other side of that, when you are trying to help someone grow their wings and fly. Sure, sure. It's some more time that you put into it. Right. So my passion, Angela, is about opening the doors of opportunity for others. Yeah. I feel like I would not be in the seat if people had not done that for me. Absolutely. In my best times and in my worst times. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I when you said that some folks our grandparents might have called people hard headed, I might have resembled that at periods of my life. Sure, okay? sure, sure. So sure. so I would want a mentor to work with me through that. Right. You know, it's sometimes you get, I don't know, you could say get, you get full of yourself or you get, and you too can have a hard time listening. Sure. I remember this occasion when the, the managing partner, the CEO of one of my law firms came in to tell me to stop doing something. Okay. <laughs> and I felt like I was having this email dispute with a significant partner while I was a partner and he was just wrong from every view you could think of about how he was approaching me. Right. And normally I would disengage from that. That day I was just pissed off. Right. Okay. 
I'm like, no, I'm I'm not going to be the bigger one. Yes, Yes, exactly. So I'm going to engage with you in this fight. Yeah, yeah. And there were numbers of people on the email. Just sitting back watching (laughs) this Just watching this fight go, you know. (laughs) And I had the moral high ground from my perspective on this issue. Right. So we're going back and forth. CEO comes in. He says, shut that computer down. (laughs) You're done. (laughs) To me. He says, don't do that. You have a really long runway. And this clown who is emailing you back and forth doesn't. Right. And you really aren't doing yourself a service, even though you're right to keep going back and forth. Right, right, right. right? right. So, you know, again, I say that to say that even sometimes I, who love to have a mentor and a sponsor, (laughs) need a good talking to every now and then. Yeah, sure, sure. So I feel like for people that I mentor and sponsor, sometimes they might need a good talking to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So I don't um, shrink from the person who needs more of my help. Mm. That means someone who's already a rock star won't get my help that day because I need to work on the person who's still trying to figure out where their wings are. Right, right, right. So I just take it as part of you. You meet people where they are. Yeah. And you try to help them. But there are those people who will not listen. Absolutely. I have learned Sometimes I have to give up. Yeah. Sometimes, you little birdie, someone else is going to have to help you yeah. fly. Okay? <laughs> it won't be Sharon. Yeah. But that took me a long time to learn. I felt I could save and Everybody. do and help everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I've learned now that you can try, and, and I, I have a period of which I'm going to try this, and I'm going to try that, and I'm going to try for this amount of time. Right. And if I can't actually help, I'm going to direct you to someone else. Right. Most importantly, I'm going to direct you away from me. Right, right, (laughs) right. So I have learned to give up on occasion. I I mean, but that's powerful, though, because when we hear and people talk about mentorship, you never hear people talk about, look, there are some people who just can't be mentored or don't want to listen or whatever. And that's why I asked the question. (laughs) It is kind of a backwards question from what you, but, but I want to address that because I now, you know, uh, am, am more in a management role. And and sometimes there are days yeah. I struggle with that, you know, so I, I wanted yeah. to get your And Angela, I will tell people frequently when I'm when they ask me to be a mentor, because I get these requests all the time, I don't have a lot of time. So if you want me to be your mentor, here are the rules. Right. Right. right? I'm going to be a good mentor. You have to be a good mentee. Right, right. Which means you have to listen. Right. And if you don't, if you disagree... I'd rather you tell me that you disagree with the advice I'm giving, and we can flex. Right. We can be agile. Right, right. But when when I ask you to do something and you don't do it, and it comes back on you, right, right, then I actually don't want to hear you whine about it. Well, yeah, yeah, okay? yeah. Right? I told you so. So I yeah. try to be very upfront with my mentees about what it takes to have a good mentor. Right. And on the other side, what it takes to have a good mentee. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. It's a two-way that. street. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You mentioned. Um, one of your partners at your law firm. And one thing we both, I'm at a law firm, you came from a law firm. But what what I've learned is people really do not know and understand how law firms work as a business or how lawyers must work to be successful at law firms, right? Um, You've utilized your career background as an IP leader in private practice to develop a culture in Cummins Legal Department that actively and unapologetically addresses the inherent lack of diversity in most law firm rosters, particularly in IP department like I've talked about. Can you describe your approach in establishing an inclusive workplace culture where in-house legal counsel or business professionals partner with outside counsel in order to hold them accountable on promoting 
a pipeline of diverse legal talent within the law firm environment. What I tell my outside lawyers is the best thing you have going for you is I sat in your seat for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, I spent 30 years in the law firm, 10 years as an associate, 20 years as a partner. So I know what it's like. Yeah, right? yeah. Not only did I sit in your shoes, I had a successful practice. I had my matter staffed with diverse lawyers at the firm. Yeah. I was able to recruit diverse lawyers at the firm. Yeah. I was able to give them good work at the firm. And I was able to help them make partner. So what you know is what you're asking is not unthinkable. Right? I did it. I did it. Yes. I walked and talked and chewed gum at the same time. Absolutely. I got clients. I did great work. I recruited diverse talent. And brought them and up. And brought them up. Yep, yeah. And yep. taught them how to be partners. And yep. taught them how to get clients so yes. they could stay partners. Yes, okay? absolutely. So I know it can be done. And my law firm gave me the runway to do it. Yeah. When I interviewed... At my last law firm, Foley and Lardner, I asked the managing partner, why should I come? It's 1995. I don't see any black partners. So how do I know I'm going to be successful? Right. And he said, because I want to help you be successful. And he did. Yes. He was an incredible sponsor for me. Yes. And his job was to open doors for me and let me utilize the opportunity to be successful. Yes. That is exactly what I think people should be doing. Right, right. Inside the law firm. Right. So remember also inside the law firm, as I was the first African-American department chair yes. of any department in my law firm, let alone the intellectual property IP. department. Right, right, <laughs> okay? right, right. And in that group, I had more diverse lawyers and gender diversity than any department in the firm. Absolutely. And the reason was is that I was going to invest in the careers of the diverse people in my group, as well as women, and everybody, really. Right. I mean, you, you know, you, you see people who have worked with me, white males, women, white women, black sure. women, black males, they will tell you all that I invested in their careers. Sure, sure. So I got awards for the diversity of my department, and I was able to recruit black lawyers and women because I was going to invest, and they could see a rise to the top. Sure. So when I sit in the seat of the GC, I also wondered, well, why, if GCs say they want diversity and they're outside lawyers, why aren't we getting it? Right. So I wanted to sit in the GC seat and understand it because I had to go convince GCs all the time to hire me as an African-American woman. Yes. I wasn't always successful, but I was successful enough. Right, 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 right. So I wanted to know what was holding them back. If that's what you say you want, and you're the GC, and you're the person giving out work. You right. get to hire who you want. Right. Why isn't it happening? Right. The thing that I found out sitting in this seat, I call it malicious compliance on the law firm's part. Yes. They nod, and they say they're going to do it, and they come and tell you they can't find anybody. Oh, but that person's not the best person for your work. Well, why are they working at your firm right. if they're not smart and they can't do my work? Right, right, right. right. So there are all of these things that law firms have as historical cultural places. Yes. Um, that say we can't bring that gender, a woman or a black person to the table for talent because in their eyes, talent looks like them. Yes. Right? So sitting in the GC seat, what I said was, hey, look, I'm going to meet you where you are. I know it can be done because I sat in your seats and I did it. Yeah. And I know there's no shortage of talented women and talented black people out there who are lawyers who would be thrilled to come work for you. Sure, sure. And I want you to use my work to attract them. Yeah. Frequently is what, what client am I going to put them on? Mine. Right. <laughs> my work. Okay. <laughs> right. uh, and I had the support of my CEO and my leadership team on doing that. Yeah. But the first thing I needed to make sure was I had their support 
and trying to go out and diversify my outside law group. Sure. And I guarantee to them that I would bring them incredibly talented people yes. to do that work. So meeting with the law firms and I say, hey, here's what I want. Wherever you are right now, we're going to work on this together. We will come over and help you recruit talented lawyers of color and women to your groups, and we will give them work that they can develop on. And they may make some mistakes. Let's not hope it costs us too much. I know that. <laughs> they may make some mistakes. But we're not going to toss them out because they might make a mistake. We want you to continue to invest in them. Right. And if you invest more and you bring more, we will give you more work. Because that is what lawyers understand. Right. right. So I needed to go and I call it fishing where the fish are. Right. I'm going to hold out the carrot for you. But there is a stick. Because if you don't make the journey, yeah. I am going to move my work. Right. I'm willing to work with you. I'm willing to help you make the journey, but if you can't make the journey and you're not using your political will to make the journey, then I think there are some firms out there who will. Yeah, absolutely. And so I've always been real transparent on that because I do want to work with you. I want you to be the best version of yourself you say you want. Right. You say you want diverse lawyers. You say you want them to stay. You say you want them to become partners. I want to help you do that. Right. And I want to help you by putting my, my work and my dollars where my passion and, and values are. Yeah. And that is a value of Cummins, as you know. The malicious compliance part. Again, set in those seats, see what happens. You bring somebody to the pitch, yep. bring a diverse person to the pitch, never see them again on a piece of work. Absolutely. Right? You come in, you bring a lot of people in to talk to us and meet with us and grow relationships, you never bring the diverse lawyers. My feeling was we knew what to look for. So I don't wait for you to bring them. I say, hey, bring Angela to the next pitch, right. or I'm going to look to see how much time Angela's building on that matter. I've called them up and said, called lawyers up and say, hey, where's, where's Angela? Did you bring her to the pitch? Or isn't she over there in your firm? Is she too busy to work on my matters? Right. What's going on? Right, right. So, so you do get to know the people, the diverse people at the firm, because you have to ask for them. Because again, in their minds, talent looks like them. Yeah. That's so, never going to be the first, the first front line. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it really is understanding the dynamics of how law firms work yeah. and what motivates them. And if they can't be motivated and they can't take the journey, then telling them goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to take that journey. Right. You just have to take it if you're going to do my work, right. the right. work for my company. So right. I was willing to do either. And so we do. We spend a lot of time with our outside lawyers, which is why you needed to have a, a fewer outside law firms right. in order to invest in them in the same way you would invest in a person. Yeah, yeah. And, and Lord knows, I, I have witnessed <laughs> the transparency, the accountability, like, and, and that's why you are so powerful. I have not to this day seen anyone be so unapologetically transparent about this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. And to your point, you can get on the journey or not. Yeah. It's up to you, right? Um, I, I, I've sat on panels and had conversations with in-house attorneys who lack either the knowledge, the motivation, or the capacity to hold outside counsel accountable for increasing their numbers in diverse attorneys. Frankly, as, as I look at it, the lack of interest in that regard seems to be driven many times by the fact that the in-house counsel's realization that their own internal legal department isn't very diverse mm -hmm. at all. So it's kind of hard to hold someone accountable for something you're not doing at home, right? right. So, so what role do you believe in-house counsel and or the GC, and you, you've spoken about the GC, but I'm, I'm more talking about the, you know, the lower level, but still very influential in-house attorneys yeah. who are working with outside counsel, 
What role do you think they have in ensuring that their outside law firms have actionable and accountable measures to increase diversity at all levels? And what advice would you offer it to in-house counsel with the power to make real and needed change in their respective organization with regard to diversity, but, but don't necessarily feel empowered to do that? Yeah. So for me, Angela, doing this work meant that I had to bring my team along. If you do it as one person, when you're gone, that whole commitment is gone. Yeah. So over the entire decade that I've been at Cummins, it's been a learning journey for my team, too. Sure. Right, so I've made sure that they understand the value of diversity, why the biz there's a business case for diversity, and also why it's the right thing to do. Right, I didn't do it alone. Right, the work that I've done to diversify our outside counsel and diversify our in-house counsel has been the help of all of the team, but on purpose. Right, right, right. I didn't. Yes, very intentional bringing them along because I wanted to leave a legacy that they now know how to find diverse lawyers, sure. how to help them be successful, both in-house and at the law firm. Sure. So the thing I would say most about it is we struggle because we have so much stuff on our plates. Mm. Um, I think our outside counsel don't understand the amount of work that the in-house lawyers have on their plate, not just legal work, right. but all the other reasons why you're in-house, all the other business things you sure, have to be sure, involved sure. in. Yeah. And so we get distracted. And for me, I'm laser focused. So I don't get distracted by the, the noise in the corner. Right. But many, many people are distracted by all of the other things on their plate, and that's just one thing. And so right. if your law firms aren't really trying to make it and they're just being superficial about it, it, it takes time to see that and make sure you're working with, you're, you're calling them on it, let yeah, me put it that yeah, way. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Right. That's the malicious compliance part for me. It's like, you know we're, we're really busy, and therefore... It's hard to keep overseeing stuff that you're supposed to be doing. Right, right. The second thing about it is how in-house counsel can work on it is you look at the staffing of your matters. I can't tell you, even now, I have to say, how's that matter being staffed? Right, right. right. Visible diversity is easy to find. Right. Give me the pictures of the people on my file. Right, right, okay. right. And I hold my in-house counsel accountable for staffing. Because you can't open a matter in Cummins unless the in-house lawyer signs off on it, mm -hmm. on the staffing of the matter as well as the budget. So your job as in-house lawyer is to look at staffing. Now, they should already know how you want it staffed, but I've got to tell you, you do have to watch over it. And you then have to say, hey, you mean to tell me uh, you're doing a $6 million matter for me and you have no diverse people who can work on this matter? Right, right, That's right. going to be a lot of lawyers and a lot of time. You know, sometimes there are specialties where you're not going to find diversity. One place, for example, might be hard is maritime law. Mm -hmm. Okay, So there are areas where it's hard to find diversity and there are areas where it's not. Right, right. Right, and in those areas where it's not, you can make up for areas where you don't have as much diversity. Sure. It's a constant measure and metric. You know, in, in, in-house, in corporate America, if it doesn't get measured, it doesn't get done. So if you're measuring, and you know, I measure every six months, I, I bring my law know. firms in, yeah. and I say, let's look at the numbers. Yep. How are you doing on this? And I expect improvement over the next six months. Right. So you got to keep measuring, because it doesn't work by just letting it go, right. if you're in-house counsel. Right. You got to keep bringing them in, and making sure that they're doing what you ask as you see those people rise up through the firm. Because what you're trying to do is help them retain those incredibly talented black lawyers and women that are coming. And if they don't find there's an inclusive environment and you're not learning and gaining opportunity they and training, yeah. they will leave. Absolutely. And I got quite a few people in my in-house group 
who came from those law firms. Absolutely. Because they're going to get something different over at Cummins because we are going to invest and we are going to train and we are going to give them experience. So it's, it's that amount of work that it takes from the in-house counsel to keep the law firms doing the things you've asked them to do that people get distracted from because they have other things on their plate. Yeah, like the work. Like the work. Yeah, and that's yeah. why it's difficult because there's no, there's no real political will at many law firms yeah, to do it. That's right. I mean, and I've seen you take that on in just ways, again, just absolutely boss moves. I mean, I don't know any other way to describe it. Just um, absolutely asserting your authority and your position to make real change for the lives of so many diverse lawyers, myself included. How have you leveraged your power, we're just talking about, to ensure that the selected law firms and corporate legal departments deliver valuable client services while also focusing serious efforts on what we're talking about, ensuring that they're recruiting, advancing, retaining qualified, diverse talent internally? And what do you do to make sure outside of your um, you know, your six-month evaluation where you make sure that they're doing what they need to do. How do you measure or, or make sure that not just diverse talent is working on your files, but that they are truly advancing through the right. firms to the next level? So you're in it for the long haul. I mean, again, I've been in this seat for 10 years. So in those 10 years, I have seen and should have seen lawyers progressing in those firms. So what we do is we like to create opportunities for visibility so there are certain things that lawyers need in law firms to be able to be successful. You need good work so that you can learn, complex work so you can be trained. You need someone who's going to allow you to fail and recover and who's going to invest in your continued growth. You need to feel included like you are part of the solution, you know, as you come up the ranks. You also need to learn how to go get clients, right? Because at the end of the day, if you're a partner, that's you got to learn how to slay the food. That's right. right? That's right. So all of those things we try to help the law firms do with their associates. We focus on diverse associates because that's where the struggle is, but we do it for all of the associates who work. We bring them over. We give them visibility to the client. We ask that they get some of our good complex work so that they stay and they get trained. Right. We do in-house programs so that they can come over and do CLEs for us. We want that visibility. And I meet with every managing partner of every law firm that I work with to tell them this is what I'm looking at. I'm looking to make sure that the diverse lawyers and your female lawyers are getting good, complex work from us, that you are investing in them, that they're training, that you're giving them some visibility, including coming to our evaluations every six months. Right. We take that time of investing in the law firm just like I would in a mentee, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. and working with them. And when they fail and falter, we, we don't hit them with a sledgehammer. We say we pick them up and we say, okay, now go do this. Right, right. right. We'll help you go do this thing. So we actually try to treat them like partners. You know, I went through this convergence program. I started at Cummins. We had 150 law firms. I wanted it down to about 20 because you can spend more time with them if you have fewer law firms. Right. And that's the kind of time I wanted to be able to invest for my in-house counsel to invest in the law firm to help them do the things they say they wanted to do anyway. Right, right. Right. And so we also write letters. I've written letters to people saying this person should be a partner, right? right. So we, we do invest in, that, in the career growth of folks over the course of the firm. And even when they decide to leave, we don't just say, okay, you're, you're gone from that firm. We're no longer invested. We also follow many of our associates and young partners over you know, their career. Yeah. I started a summer program to make sure that we had first and second year law students who could come in and get some 
corporate experience and understand what it was like to work in-house and also get paid. And then we also have an externship program. And it was to really give diverse lawyers an opportunity to work and get some visibility. And it has helped a lot in getting them their first jobs because we don't hire directly from law schools. But we started that program because having been there, I know how important getting a summer job is. Yeah, yeah. I was just talking to Lamont Hatcher about his insistence that our generation (laughs) pay homage to our predecessors who mentored and contributed to our career success. You are one of several diverse legal trailblazers that have unquestionably contributed to my legal career and, you know, any success that I've garnered to date. And the career, as I mentioned, of so many other diverse attorneys. As you begin to think about, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to rush you out, but I'm just saying, <laughs> as you begin to think about your professional and legal legacy, you talked about legacy earlier. What are some of the things you'd like folks to know about you and your professional passions and the purpose that may not be known or obvious to them now? I kind of have learned to live my purpose, especially over the last 20 years. I mean, I was a partner after 10 years of working and I got to solidify that for 10 years. (laughs) And then, you know, the next 20 years was about how do I solidify that purpose and passion for getting and giving people opportunity? Yeah. So what I think people should understand is I have been this way since the first day I walked in a law firm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I walked in and there was no one in there that looked like me. There was one other woman and no black people. Right. And that has been very much the environment for many, many decades of my career. Right. Every law firm I've walked into, I've gone with the intention that I'm going to help you hire some black people right. and some women and I'm going to help you keep them. And I don't know where I had the wherewithal as a third year associate or a fourth year to still think that way. Right, right. That is how I was thinking the day I walked out after I, after I got out of law school. What I would say is it's been a long, long journey for me on this path because I didn't want to accomplish anything just for me. I actually want to see how can I bring some other people along? The thing that I would say is that One of the things I recognize that if you're a partner, how many clients you have and how much book of business you bring in matters. And it matters not only because you get wealthy, but it matters on your bona fides in the firm Mm -hmm. and what you can get done. Mm -hmm. So for me, getting clients and doing that work was really about bringing other people through. When I go out and hire young lawyers, diverse lawyers in the firm, it was about I've got at least a 10 year investment going on here. Right. Right. I want to bring you in. I want you to what you first need to do is be the best lawyer you can be. Right. And that's an everyday thing. Right. Right. But you need to show up in the room and I want you to show up knowing <laughs> that you are probably two times as prepared as anybody else in that room. And then you need to know how to do the non skill based stuff that it, the emotional intelligence that we're so often not taught. Right. Right. How do you build trust with the people at the firm? How right. do you build trust with your clients? There are lots of unwritten rules. Sure about being successful in a corporate environment, whether it's a law firm or a company. Sure. So the second thing was helping people to know those things as they come through that are, can be career stoppers. And then the third is, hey, at the end of the day, if you want to be at this firm and you want to be a partner and you want to stay, you've got to be able to get clients. Right. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that you need to go do that. So let's learn along the way how you do that. So I also took them to client pitches and made sure they got a portion of the work and the credit so that they could be partners and they could be financially, um, you know, more well off. So what I want people to know is it is not a one and done. It is not a one time job. Mm -hmm. For me, the legacy is about a lifetime of trying to do this work 
and help people open those doors and then have them help others. You may know that one of the things I say to people that I'm mentoring, especially lately, is all I want you to do is bring some other people through, too. Yeah. Like, don't get there and pull the rug up. Right. Get there and understand your job is to open the door. Yeah. Yep. And then make sure you are giving them the support they need. Hey, they can get torn down every day, every place. Right. But you also need to help build them up. Right. So that they are confident about what they bring to the table. So it's a whole psychology ecosystem right, right, of right. building and making sure we have black lawyers and women lawyers who are going to stay in it for the long run. Right. Sharon, you, you talk about this lifetime and legacy of diversifying the legal practice as much as possible. I would like to get a little perspective from you because you have that vantage point on what do you think the future of the legal profession looks like with regard to diversity, particularly in light of what is happening in America societally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm getting to an age now where I, I'm a little more concerned, right? My 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 view isn't so op- as optimistic as it probably was 10 years ago when it seemed like, you know, things were really becoming more equal and more fair and, you know, diverse people in all ranks and positions had, had greater opportunities. I, I'm now looking at a world that has me concerned, just generally, not just in the legal practice, but I want to get your thoughts around that just because you have a little, a little more, uh, <laughs> a few more years than me, not many, but a few. Yeah, Angela, that's a really good question. I'll tell you that my faith was shaken. Yeah. Uh, my belief in that we were moving forward. Yeah. Um, especially after the George Floyd incident and the racial awakening, because I thought people knew more than they know. Right, right. right. I was shocked at how little people know about our history, our black history in America, and the aspects of systemic racism that was inculcated in our laws. Right, right, right. You can't make this stuff up. That's right, that's right. And it wasn't just for blacks, it was also for women. Women couldn't own property. Yeah. Right, So, so this stuff was inculcated in our laws, and I thought we were moving to a, to a world in which people understood that and therefore were working to preclude it anymore. And right. so that shook my faith right. after working in corporate America for 30 years on that basis that we were all, you know, not everybody at the same pace, not everybody with the same enthusiasm, right, right, but right. we were working for this better place. Right, right. And so I remember talking to my three young adults, recent college grads, talking to them thinking, it's hard for me to give them optimism right. because I just spent 30 years working in the system that didn't work. Right, right. Right? But at the end of the day, what else do I have except to keep trying and yeah. keep struggling and I keep working for right. it? Yeah. And I think about frequently, all I'm doing is I'm mentally tired. Certainly there's some physical. There were people who died for me to be in this chair Absolutely. and this room. Absolutely. They gave the ultimate sacrifice. So who am I to be tired? Right. Right, Get right. up and keep moving and keep struggling as long as you can. As long as you can put your feet on the floor, you have an obligation. Absolutely. For those people who gave the ultimate price yes, yes, yes. to have you be able to get in one of those rooms. Yes. And you also owe them trying to get other people in that that's room. That's right. It ain't just you. Right. That's right. Exactly. That's exactly So that's right. what keeps me going. Yeah. Right? At least I'm still here and I can still fight. Fight the fight. Right. Fight the fight. Yeah. And... I want to empower my kids to understand, hey, you, it's a journey. Right. Don't know what, that you'll ever get there to the mountaintop, as Martin Luther King right, would say. Right, right, but right. But on the way, 
you still have to work, you still have to struggle, yeah. and you still have to bring people along. Yeah, yeah. You cannot afford to give up. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. if we give up, what, what other options do we have? Right. Yeah, that's right. And again, you know, you look at our ancestors who made it through slavery and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. Yeah. I'm, I, some, some person's talking at me. Yeah. <laughs> I can live with that. That's right. right that's right. No water holes, right. no dogs, right. no, no whips or being No lynchings. Yeah. That's exactly. Right. That's right. Yeah. So that's what keeps me going. Yeah. That, that's powerful. And, and I appreciate that because I needed to hear that. So thank you. So, so last question, and this is again, just final request for you to share two, three tools or tips or resources that you would advise any person of color, any diverse person, any woman who's interested in pursuing law or IP law in order to make sure that they advance on their legal trajectory, particularly here in Indiana. You've mm -hmm. been here for quite a while now. So what, what would you advise, you know, students or young attorneys as they're just beginning on their legal trajectory to make sure that they're successful in the long run? You know, I always start out with skill and capability. That's right. Right. To me, that's the card that gets you in the door. Right. So the first few years, you just got to become the best lawyer you can. Yeah. Right. Wherever you're working, what they need from you are billable hours or legal work. What you need is training. Right, right, right. right. Law school does not teach you how to be a lawyer. Absolutely not. So that's the first thing you need to understand. They teach you how to think like a lawyer. Right. But the actual being a lawyer is an apprenticeship kind of thing. Right. So you need to be out there getting the best work and the best training that you can for the first year. Don't worry about all of that other stuff while you become the best. Because if you're not the best right. at what you do, those rooms where you walk in and someone is always going to be thinking that you shouldn't be in that room you're going to start to believe them. Right, right, right. So you got to be the best at that skill. So that's number one for me. Right, right. I think to me, the thing that I didn't know early on that I wish I'd known was this notion of emotional intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. Because my parents taught me that if you go and you do great work, you keep your head down, you'll be okay, good things will happen. Well, not so much. Right, not always. Not absolutely. always. And not not in these law firm environments. Right, right. There's an amount of emotional intelligence of uh, how to get and gain trust, yeah. right? How to get somebody to be your mentor and be trained. That's not written, and we're not told. Right, right, right. right. So we think that just by being great lawyers, we're going to hit that rising star, and right. there's more to it than that. Right, right, right. So the second thing I would say is learn the more to it. Learn the unwritten role, right, rules. Right, right. You're smart. If you understand the unwritten rules, you can learn them just the way you can the written rules. Right, right. But you got to be willing to know that there's stuff you still have to learn. So to me, that's the second thing. It took me a while to get there because I also was very confident of my skills and abilities. So when I walked into my first law firm, I was like, hey, I know I'm good. Right. I know I work hard, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know about that other stuff. Right. There were some struggles right. as a result. So that to me is the second thing. Learn that emotional intelligence. Sure, sure. And then understand that very few people, it is the exceptional person who makes it without a mentor or a sponsor. Who's going to be in that room that you're not in carrying your paper? There are always rooms. And even when I'm in run room, I know there's another room. Right, right, okay, right, right. That I'm right, not in. Right, right, right. So understand the room dynamics yeah. and understand that someone needs to be in there talking about you positively. As a partner, you know, you get in those rooms and people say things about associates and maybe even each other. Right. And people never know it. And so you don't get that feedback. Right. To grow. 
So for me, those three things are really critical along the way. Well, Sharon, we're going to wrap it up here, but I, I, I just want to thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with our listeners. But more than anything, personally, I thank you for investing in me. Mm, I'll get emotional. Lord, have mercy. I, I thank you for that. You saw me, saw something in me, and and and, and raised me up. <laughs> Snatched me up, maybe. <laughs> but I appreciate that. I mean, I appreciate you truly living your purpose, yeah. right? And 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 make making my firm better, making me better, and positioning me to do exactly what you said, which is open the door for the next ones coming down the line. Thank you for that. Thanks for being here today. Thanks to you for joining us on this Black History Month episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. 